This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Anderson. Michael O'Halloran by Jean Stratton Porter. Chapter 2 Moccasins and Lady Slippers. Tuck this in the toe of your shoe three times tonight. It was in his eyes and on his tongue, and his slowness let the moment pass, but it must come soon. Leslie. No messenger boy for those, said Douglas Bruce, as he handed the florist the price set on the lady's slippers. Leave them where people may enjoy them until I call. As he turned, another man was inquiring about the orchids, and he too preferred the slippers. But when he was told they were taken, he had wanted the moccasins all the time anyway. The basket was far more attractive. He refused delivery, and returning to his waiting car, smiling over the flowers. He also saw a vision of the woman into whose sated life he hoped to bring a breath of change with the wonderful gift. He saw the basket in her hands, and thrilled in anticipation of the favors her warmed heart might prompt her to bestow upon him. In the mists of early morning, the pink orchids surrounded by rosemary and ladies' tresses had glowed and gleamed from the top of a silvery moss mound four feet deep, under a big tamarack in a swamp, through the bog of which the squaw plunged to her knees at every step to uproot them. In the evening glow of electricity snapped from their stems, the beautiful basket untouched, the moccasins lay on the breast of a woman of fashion, and with every second of contact with the warmth of her body, drooped lower until clasped in the arms of her lover they were quite crushed and so flung from an automobile to be ground to pulp by passing wheels the slippers had a happier fate douglas bruce carried them reverently he was sure he knew the swamp in which they grew as he went his way he held the basket velvet white in strong hands and swayed his body with the motion of the car lest one leaf be damaged when he entered the hall down the stairs came leslie winton "'Why, Douglas, I wasn't expecting you,' she said. Douglas Bruce held up the basket. "'Joy!' she cried. "'Oh, joy unspeakable! "'Who has been to the tamarack swamp?' "'A squaw was leaving Lowry's "'just as he put these in his window,' answered Douglas. "'Bring them,' she said. "'He followed to a wide side veranda, "'set the basket on a table in a cool spot, "'and drew a chair near it. "'Leslie Winton seated herself, "'leaned on the table, and studied the orchids.' Unconsciously she made the picture Douglas had seen. She reached up slim fingers and delicate touchings here and there of moss, corolla, and slipper. Never in all my days, she said, never in all my days. I shall keep the basket always and the slippers as long as I possibly can. See this one. It isn't fully opened. I should have them for a week at least. Please hand me a glass of water. Douglas started to say that ice water would be far too cold, but with the wisdom of a wise man waited, and as always was joyed at the waiting, for the girl took the glass, and cupping her hands around it sat talking to the flowers, and to him, as she warmed the water with the heat from her body. Douglas was so delighted with the unforeseen second that had given him first chance at the orchids, and so this unexpected call, that he did not mind the attention she gave the flowers. He had reasons for not being extravagant, but seldom had a like sum brought such returns. He began drawing interest as he watched Leslie. Never had her form seemed so perfect, her dress so becoming and simple. 
How could other women make a vulgar display in the same pattern that clothed her modestly? How wonderful were the soft coils of her hair, the tints paling and flushing on her cheeks, her shining eyes. Why could not all women use her low, even, perfectly accented speech and deliberate self-control? He was in daily intercourse with her father, a high official of the city, a man of education, social position, and wealth. Mr. Winton had reared his only child according to his ideas, but Douglas, knowing these things, believed in blood also. As Leslie turned and warmed the water she meant presently to administer to the flowers, watching her, the thought was strong in his mind, what a woman her mother must have been. Each day he was with Leslie, he saw her do things that no amount of culture could instill. Instinct and tact are inborn. Careful rearing may produce a good imitation. They are genuine only with blood. Leslie had always filled his ideal of a true woman. To ignore him for his gift would have piqued many a man. Douglas Bruce was pleased. You wonders, she said softly. Oh, you wonders. When the mists lifted in the marshes this morning and the first ray of gold touched you to equal goldness, you didn't know you were coming to me. I almost wish I could put you back. Just now you should be in such cool mistiness and you should be hearing a hermit thrush sing vespers, a cedar bird call, and a whippoorwill cry. But I'm glad I have you. Oh, I'm so glad you came to me. I never materialized a whole swamp with such vividness as only this part of it brings. Douglas, when you caught the first glimpse of these, how far into the swamp did you see past them? To the heart of the swamp, and of my heart. I can see it as perfectly as I ever did, she said. But I eliminate the squaw, possibly because I didn't see her. And however exquisite the basket is, she broke the law when she peeled a birch tree. I'll wager she brought this to Lowry, covered carefully. And I'm not sure, but there should have been a law she broke when she uprooted these orchids. Much as I love them, I doubt if I can keep them alive and bring them to bloom next season. I'll try, but I don't possess flower magic in the highest degree. She turned the glass and touched it with questioning palm. Was it near the warmth of bog water? After all, was bog water warm? Next time she was in a swamp, she would plunge her hand deeply in the mosses and feel the exact temperature to which these roots had been accustomed. Then she spoke again. Yes, Douglas, I eliminate the squaw. These golden slippers are of the swamp to me, but I see you kneeling to lift them. I am so glad I'm the woman they made you see. Douglas sat forward and opened his lips. Was not this the auspicious moment? Did the squaw bring more, she questioned? Yes, he answered. Pink moccasins in a basket of red osiers with the same moss and rosemary and white tresses. Would you rather those? She set down the glass and drew the basket toward her with both hands. Her touch of it and the look on her face made Douglas think of a young mother clasping her baby. As she parted the mosses and dropped in the water, she slowly shook her head. One must have seen them to understand what that would be like, she said. I know it was beautiful, but I'm sure I would have selected the gold had I been there. Oh, I wonder if the woman who has the moccasins will give them a drink tonight, and will she try to preserve their roots? She will not, said Douglas emphatically. How can you possibly know, queried the girl. I saw the man who ordered them, laughed Douglas. Oh, said Leslie comprehendingly. I'd stake all I'm worth. The moccasins are drooping against a lavender dress. The roots are in a garbage can, and the cook or maid has the basket, he said. Douglas, how could you? exclaimed Leslie. I couldn't, positively couldn't. Mine are here. The slow color crept into her cheek. 
I'll make these brutes bloom next spring, and you shall see them in perfection, she promised. That would be wonderful, he exclaimed warmly. Tell me, were there yet others, she asked hastily. Only these, he said. But there was something else. I came within a second of losing them. While I debated, or rather while I possessed these, and worshipped before the others, there was a gutter row that almost made me lose yours. In the gutter again, she laughed. Once again, he admitted, such a little chap with an appealing voice, and his inflection was the smallest part of what he was saying. Ah, oh, kid, come on, be square. Oh, Leslie. Why, Douglas, the girl cried, tell me. Of all the wooden-headed slowness, he exclaimed, I've let him slip again. Let who slip again, queried Leslie. My little brother, answered Douglas. Oh, Douglas, you didn't really, she protested. Yes, I did, he said. I heard a little lad saying the things that are in the blood and bone of the men money can't buy and corruption can't break. I heard him plead like a lawyer and argue his case straight. I lent a hand when his elegance failed, got him his deserts, and let him go. I did have an impulse to keep him. I did call after him, but he disappeared. Douglas, we can find him, she comforted. I haven't found either of the others I realized I had been interested in after I let them slip, he answered. And this boy was both of them rolled into one, and ten more like them. Oh, Douglas, I'm so sorry. But maybe some other man has already found him, said Leslie. No, you can always pick the brothered boys, said Douglas. The first thing that happens to them is a clean-up and better clothing, and an air of possessed importance. No man has attached this little fellow. Douglas, describe him, she commanded. I'll watch for him. How did he look? What was the trouble? One at a time, cautioned the man. He was a little chap, such a white, thin, clean, threadbare little chap, with such a big voice, so wonderfully intoned, and such a bigger principle for which he was fighting. One of these overgrown newsboys the public won't stand for unless he's in the way while they're making a car had hired him to sell his papers while he loafed. Mickey. Mickey? repeated Leslie questioningly. The big fellow called him Mickey. No doubt a mother who adored him named him Michael and thought him like unto God when she did it. The big fellow had loafed all afternoon, and when Mickey came back and turned over the money and waited to be paid off, his employer laughed at the boy for not keeping it when he had it. Mickey begged him to be square and told him that was not business. Not business, mind you. And the big fellow jeered at him and was starting away. Mickey had reached him at the same time, so I got in the gutter again, and I also let the rarest boy I ever saw escape me. I don't see how I can be so slow. I don't see how I did it. I don't either, she said, with a twinkle that might have referred to the first of the two exclamations. It must be your scotch habit of going slow and surely. But cheer up. We'll find him. I'll help you. Have you reflected on the fact that this city covers many square miles, of which a fourth is outskirts, and from them three thousand newsboys gathered at the last Salvation Army banquet for them? That's where we can find him, she cried. Thanksgiving or Christmas? Of course we'll see him then. Mickey didn't have a Salvation Army face, he said. I'm sure he is a freelance, and a rare one besides. This is May. I want my little brother to go on my vacation with me. I want him now. Would it help any if I'd be a sister to you? Not a bit, said Douglas. I don't in the very least wish to consider you in the light of a sister. You have another place in my heart, very different and all your own. But I do wish to make of Mickey the little brother I never have had. Minton was telling me what a rejuvenation he's getting from the boy he picked up. 
Already he has him in his office and is planning school and partnership with a man he can train as he chooses. But Mintern has sons of his own, protested Leslie. Oh, no, not in the least, exclaimed Douglas. Mintern has sons of his wife's, and she presently upsets and frustrates Mintern's every idea for them, and he is helpless. You will remember she has millions, and he has what he earns. He can't separate his boys, splendid physical little chaps, from their mother's money and influence, and educate them to be a help to him. They are to be made into men of wealth and leisure. Mintern will evolve his little brother into a man of brains and efficiency. But Mintern is a power, cried the girl. Not financially, explained Douglas. Nothing but money counts with his wife. In telling me of this boy, Mintern confessed that he was forced, forced, mind you, to see his sons ruined while he is building a street gammon as he would them if permitted. How sad, Douglas, cried Leslie. Your voice is bitter. Can't he do something? Not a bloomin' thing, answered Douglas. She has the money. She is their mother. Her character is unimpeachable. If Minturn went to the extremes, the law would give them to her, and she would turn them over to ignorant servants who would corrupt them and be well paid for doing it. Why, Minturn told me that, but I can't repeat that. Anyway, he made me eager to try my ideas on a lad who would be company for me when I can't be here and don't wish to be with other men. Are you still going to those brotherhood meetings? I am, and I always shall be. Nothing in life gives me such big returns for the time invested. There is a world of talk breaking loose about the present unrest among women. I happen to know that the unrest is as deep with men. For each woman I personally know, bitten by unrest, I know two men in the same condition. As long as men and women are forced to combine, to uphold society, it is my idea that it would be a good thing if there was to be a sisterhood organization, and then the two societies frankly brought together and allowed to clear up the differences between them. But why not? asked the girl eagerly. Because we are pursuing false ideals, and have a wrong conception of what is worthwhile in life, answered the Scotsman. Because the sexes, except in rare, very rare instances, do not understand each other, and every day are drifting farther apart, and most of the married folk I know are the farthest apart of all. Leslie, what is it in marriage that constrains people? We can talk and argue and agree or dis disagree on anything. Why can't the Minturns? From what you say, it would seem to me it's her idea of what is worthwhile in life, said Leslie. Exactly, cried Douglas. But he can sway men. He can do powerful work. He could induce her to marry him. Why can't he control his own blood? If she should lose her money and become dependent on him for support, he could, said Leslie. He should do it anyway, insisted Douglas. Do you think you could, she queried. I never thought myself in his place, said Douglas. But I believe I will. And if I see glimmerings, I'll suggest them to him. Good boy, said the girl lightly. And then she added, Do you mind if I think myself in her place and see if I can suggest a possible point at which she can be reached? I know her. I shouldn't consider her happy. At least not what I call joy. What do you call joy? asked Douglas. Being satisfied with your environment. Douglas glanced at her, then at her surroundings, and looking into her eyes laughed quizzically. But if it were different, I am perfectly confident that I should work out joy from life, insisted Leslie. It owes me joy. I'll have it if I fight for it. Leslie, Leslie, be careful. You are challenging providence. Stronger men than I have wrought chaos for their children, said a warning voice as her father came behind her chair. 
"'Chaos or no, still I'd put up my fight for joy, Daddy,' laughed the girl. "'Only see, preciousest. One minute,' said her father, shaking hands with Douglas. "'Now what is it, Leslie?' "'Oh, I do see.' "'Take my chair and make friends,' said the girl. Mr. Winton seated himself and began examining and turning the basket. "'Indians?' he queried. "'Yes,' said Douglas. "'A particularly greasy squaw. I wish I might truthfully report an artist's Indian of the Minnehaha type.' "'But alack, it was the same one I've seen ever since I've been in the city, "'and that you've seen for years before my arrival.' "'Mr. Winton still turned the basket. "'I've bought their stuff for years, "'because neither Leslie nor her mother "'ever would tolerate fat carnations and overgrown roses, "'so long as I could find a scrap of arbutus "'or a violet or a wake robin from the woods. "'We've often motored up and penetrated the swamp "'I fancy these came from for some distance.' "'but later in the season. "'It's so very boggy now. "'Aren't these rather wonderful?' "'He turned to his daughter. "'Perfectly, Daddy, perfectly,' she said. "'But I don't mean for the Creator,' "'explained Mr. Winton. "'I'm accustomed to his miracles. "'Every day I see a number of them. "'I mean for the squaw.' "'I'd have to know the squaw "'and understand her viewpoint,' said Leslie. "'She had it in her tightly clenched fist,' "'laughed Douglas. "'One, I'm sure, anyway, not over two. "'That hasn't a thing to do with the art with which she made the basket "'and filled it with just three perfect plants,' said Leslie. "'You think there is real art in her anatomy?' queried Mr. Winton. "'Bear witness, O oh you treasures of gold,' cried Leslie, waving toward the basket. "'There was another,' exclaimed Douglas, as he again described the osier basket. "'Mr. Winton nodded. He looked at his daughter. "'I like to think, young woman,' "'That you were born with, and I have cultivated "'what might be called artistic taste in you,' he said. "'Granted the freedom of the Tramorac Swamp, "'could you have done better?' "'Not so well, Daddy, not nearly so well. "'I never could have defaced what you can see "'was a noble big tree by cutting that piece of bark, "'and I might have worshipped until dragged away, "'but so far as art and I are concerned, "'the slippers would still be under their Tamarack.' "'You are begging the question, Leslie,' laughed her father. "'I was not discussing the preservation of the wild.' I was inquiring into the state of your artistic ability. If you had no hesitation about taking the flowers, could you have gone to that swamp and collected the material and fashioned and filled a more beautiful basket than this? How can I tell, Daddy? asked the girl. There's only one way to learn. I'll forget my scruples, you get me a pair of rubber boots, and we'll drive to the tamarack swamp and experiment. We'll do it, cried Mr. Winton. The very first half day I can spare, we'll do it. And you, Douglas, "'You will want to come with us, of course.' "'Why, of course,' laughed Leslie. "'Because he started the expedition with his golden slippers, "'and when it comes to putting my girl "'and incidentally my whole family "'in competition with an Indian squaw "'on a question of art, "'naturally her father and one of her best friends "'would want to be present. "'But maybe Minnie went alone, "'and what chance would her work have "'with you two for judges?' asked Leslie. "'We needn't be the judges,' said Douglas Bruce quietly. "'We can put this basket in the basement in the coolest, dampest place, "'and it will keep perfectly for a week. "'When you make your basket, we can find the squaw and bring her down with us. "'Lowry could display the results side by side. "'We could call up whomever you consider the most artistic man and woman in the city "'and get their decision. "'You'd be willing to abide by that, wouldn't you?' "'Surely, but it wouldn't be fair to the squaw,' explained Nett Leslie. "'I'd have had the benefit of her art to begin on.' "'It would,' said Mr. Winton. "'Does not every artist, living, sc painter, sculptor, writer, "'what you will, have the benefit of all the art that has gone before?' "'You agree?' Leslie turned to Douglas. 
Your father's argument is a truism. But I will know that I am on trial. She didn't. Is it fair to her? persisted Leslie. For begging the question, commend me to a woman, said Mr. Winton. The point we began at was not what you could do in a contest with her. She went to the swamp and brought from it some flower baskets. It is quite fair to her to suppose that they are her best art. Now what we are proposing to test is whether the finest product of our civilization as embodied in you can go to the same swamp and from the same source of supply surpass her work. Do I make myself clear? Perfectly clear, Daddy, and it would be fair, conceded Leslie. But it is an offense punishable with a heavy fine to peel a birch tree, and I wouldn't do it even if it were not. Got her to respect the law anyway, said Mr. Winton to Douglas. The proposition, Leslie, was not that you do the same thing, but that from the same source you outdo her. You needn't use birch bark if it involves your law-abiding soul. Then it's all settled. You must hurry and take me before the lovely plants have flowered, said Leslie. I'll go day after tomorrow if it is a possible thing, promised Mr. Winton. In order to make our plan work, it is necessary that I keep these orchids until that time, said Leslie. You have a better chance than the lady who drew the osier basket has of keeping hers, said Mr. Winton. If I remember, I have seen the slippers in common earth quite a distant from the lake, while the moccasins demand bog moss, water, and swamp mist and dampness. I have seen slippers in the woods myself, said Leslie. I think the conservatory will do, and they are going there right now. I have to be fair to Minnie. Let me carry them for you, offered Douglas, arising. Excuse us. Back in a second, Daddy, said Leslie. I am interested, excited, and eager to make the test, yet in a sense I do not like it. But why, asked Douglas. Can't you see, countered Leslie. No, said Douglas. It's shifting my sense of possession, explained the girl. The slippers are no longer my beautiful gift from you. They are perishable things that belong to an Indian squaw, and in justice to her I have to keep them in perfect condition so that my work may not surpass hers with the unspeakable art of flower freshness. And instead of thinking them the loveliest thing in the world, I will now lie awake half the night, no doubt, studying what I can possibly find that is more beautiful. Douglas Bruce opened his slow lips and took a step in her direction. Dinner is served, announced her father. He looked inquiringly toward his daughter. She turned to Douglas. Unless you have a previous engagement, you will dine with us, won't you? she asked. I should be delighted, he said heartily. When the meal was over and they had returned to the veranda, Leslie listened quietly while the men talked most of the time. But when she did speak, what she said proved that she always had listened to and taken part in the discussions of men, until she understood and can speak of business or politics intelligently. "'Have you ever considered an official position, Douglas?' inquired Mr. Winton. "'I have an office within my gift, or so nearly that I can control it, and it seems to me you would be a good man. Surely we could work together in harmony.' It never has appealed to me that I wanted work of that nature, answered Douglas. It's unusually kind of you to think of me and make the offer. But I am satisfied with what I am doing, and there is a steady increase in my business that gives me confidence. What's your objection to office? asked Mr. Winton. That it takes your time from your work, answered Douglas. That it changes the nature of your work. That if you let the leaders of a party secure you a nomination and the party elect you, you are bound to their principles, at least there is a tacit understanding that you are, and if you should happen to be afflicted with principles of your own, then you have got to sacrifice them. 
Afflict is a good word in this instance, said Mr. Winton. It is painful to a man of experience to see you young fellows of such great promise come up and kick yourself half to death against the pricks of established business, parties, and customs, but half of you do it. In the end, all of you come limping in, poor, disheartened, defeated, and then swing to the other extreme by being so willing for a change you take almost anything, and so the dirty jobs naturally fall to you. I grant much of that, Douglas said in his deliberate way, but happily I have sufficient annual income from my father's estate to enable me to live until I become acquainted in a strange city and have time to establish the kind of business I would care to handle. I am thinking of practicing corporation law. I specialized in that, so I may have the pleasure before so very long of going after some of the men who do what you so aptly term the dirty jobs. A repetition of the customary chorus, said Mr. Winton, differing only in that it is a little more emphatic than usual. I predict that you will become an office holder having party affiliations inside ten years. Possibly, said Douglas, but I'll promise you this. It will be a new office no man ever had before has held, in the gift of a party not now in existence. Oh, you dreamers, said Mr. Winton. What a wonderful thing it is to be young and setting out to reform the world, especially on a permanent income. That's where you surpass most reformers. But I said nothing about reform, corrected Douglas. I said I was thinking of corporation law. I'm accustomed to it, and you wouldn't scare Leslie if you said reform, remarked Mr. Winton. She's a reformer herself, you know. But only sweatshops, child labor, civic improvement, preservation of the wild, and things like that, cried Leslie so quickly and eagerly that both men laughed. God be praised, exclaimed the father. God be fervently praised, echoed her lover. Before she retired, Leslie visited the slippers. I'd like to know, she said softly as she touched a bronze striped calyx. I'd like to know how I am to penetrate your location and find and fashion anything to outdo you and the squaw, you wood creatures, you. Then she bent above the flowers and whispered, Tuck this in the toe of your slipper. Three times tonight it was in his eyes and on his tongue, and his slowness let the moment pass. But it must come soon. I can bide a wee for my Scots manny, dear Lord. I can bide forever if I must. For it's he only and no other, world without end. Amen. The moccasins soon had been ground to pulp and carried away on a non-skid tire, and at three o'clock in the morning a cross, disheveled society woman, in passing from her dressing-room to her bed, stumbled over the osier basket, and it was kicked away from her. End of chapter 2